0: I was in the well and drown. You were up there looking down. Saying lucky how we both have water.
1: Hey guys, welcome to episode four of Leaving Egypt. This is a place where I share my stories and my thoughts around breaking free from spiritual and emotional oppression. I've named this podcast Leaving Egypt because Egypt was a huge theme in my story when I left my marriage. And when the Bible talks about the Israelites leaving Egypt to find the promised land after being enslaved by the Egyptians for centuries, I believe it's really more than just a story in the Bible. It's a picture of God's heart for us today, for all of us to find freedom from what chains us. So in the last episode and in my song Canary, I talked about how both myself and my husband at the time were trapped in the cycle of addiction. And part of that is not just the addiction piece, it's also the codependency piece which I haven't quite talked about that yet. So I'm going to focus on that in this episode. Um, and then later on in the episode, I'm going to touch on forgiveness. So when you think about the word codependency, you probably think it's something super negative. Um, it sounds so needy, something that you're not. I know I felt like that for sure. And it wasn't until after I left my marriage that I started to realize that I actually was codependent. And that was a really big part of Gaining control over my life and getting out of the chains was understanding what I was in. And it wasn't that I needed a label. It was just that understanding a certain attachment style and like the patterns of people that have gone through similar things or have been in abusive relationships That really helped me to understand what I was just in. And it made it so much less confusing. It gave it a professional lens. So like instead of being in the cyclone, like inside of it, I was looking at it from above. And it just really helped make it so much less confusing. And it was a really imperative part of my healing. And so that's why I wanted to bring this to you guys to hopefully um, shed light on something for, for somebody out there that needs it. But I wanna start this episode off with a prayer. So, Jesus, we just come to you today and we just thank you um, that you're here with us. I pray for anointing over the words that I'm speaking. I pray for sensitivity of your spirit with every word that I speak. And I just pray that you bring peace to us here and that you bless every listener and thank you that you know how to reach them, and that you know how to speak to them in the ways that that they need. And so I just thank you that you're going to do that. In your name we pray. Amen. So today I'm also going to talk about my song, The Well, that I just released. This whole episode was inspired by that song, How I Got In and Out of the Well. And so this isn't like a blame thing, like, you know, I have him to blame. Like, it was equally me because i allowed myself to get into that situation and so this has caused me to to look at myself and be like what patterns did i participate in that caused me to be attracted to that kind of chaos or challenge in the first place and really take responsibility for my own stuff and see it for you know my part cuz that's the only part that i can control um and so like I said it wasn't until after I got out of the marriage that I realized that I was codependent. Like I didn't realize I was codependent until after it completely ran me dry. But that's how I got into the well in the first place and I see that now. So I wrote the first verse of this song actually when I was still married. And then I finished it once I moved home after the separation happened and and then eventually the divorce happened and I moved home and I actually got my master's in teaching, which is really funny because it helped me so much in my healing because I had to be faced with honestly like the same exact themes that were in my marriage, but in the classroom, like learning boundaries, learning how to allow other people, allow the kids to face their own consequences and understand that by not allowing them to face the consequences of their actions, like I'm robbing them of an opportunity to grow and take ownership and and practice taking responsibility in their own lives. And so it like reminded me of my marriage all the time. And so it's interesting how like the paths that God takes you on end up, really serving you later if you if you can look at it that way and what teaching did for me also was it brought me so much confidence to be honest that experience being in such a damaging environment, like it was a total blow to my self-esteem. And I didn't really realize it until after I moved back home, just different things were harder for me than, than they used to be. And I, I could literally feel my lack of self-esteem. And it was like, whoa, this was doing so much more damage than I even thought it was when I was in it. And so teaching, it's like you have to survive. You have to to have the confidence. Like you have to choose it every day. Otherwise, like they're going to eat you alive. Honestly, though, like it's similar to combat veterans, which my ex-husband was. You don't realize what it did to you until you see the aftermath of the war when you come home. And so that was super true to me. Like if you knew me in high school, I was... Super confident. I mean, I had my different narratives and some self-esteem stuff, but no different than anybody else my age, you know, but I had autonomy, I had goals, I was driven, all these things. If it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. And I just have so much compassion for people that grew up in families where they didn't have high self-esteem and their worth wasn't noted and it wasn't talked about. Imagine how much easier it is for for somebody like that with that past to get into a situation and not get out of it. It can literally happen to anybody. And these things I also was in my marriage, it just was starting to fade and and it was, you know, not as constant and it was wearing me out because I tell you being married Each person holds such a responsibility to either hurt or heal the other person. And when there's so much damage being done, that hurting is so much deeper because you're so vulnerable and intimate with that person, you're giving them permission to heal or hurt you. So I had moved home and I had wrote my song, The Well. And honestly, it was the first time that I was able to put words to what I had just gone through as I was wrapping my head around everything that I had just went through. And it was so healing because it was that moment of validation. Like, I never got the validation from my ex-husband for all the pain that I was in. The first line of the song is, I used to cry a little louder just so you'd hear me in the guest room. That's how much I wanted you to be mine, to be kind, to come find me. I was dying down the hall without you. And I actually wrote that verse when I was still married. All I wanted was to be seen in my pain and validated. And that never really happened but i understand now why that didn't happen looking at it from in retrospect it's that saying hurt people hurt people and that was definitely true in this situation because i think anytime somebody engages in addiction it's like or something like that they're trying to find this this feeling and this serotonin hit and this happiness that briefly comes from that addiction but actually what they're doing is just like drinking emptiness like drinking water that has no hydration like it's just running them dry and also each time and they know it like their soul knows it and so each time they're doing it they're feeding their self hate is what's happening and so like if they admitted that they were causing you that pain and if they validated you in that pain and spoke that it's almost like it would be too much for them to bear, too much for them to handle. Like it is a survival technique and a coping mechanism because they're already kind of like capped with their, their shame and self-blame and self-hate. And I believe that the first step to healing is to be seen where you're at first in that pain. Um, and I think that like when Jesus was here, you know, he he did all these miracles and healings and and all these things transforming people's hearts and minds to love him and adore him and to choose the things that bring life but first, before he did all that wonderful stuff, like he just sat with them. He was a friend to them. He just saw them for, for who they were and whatever mud they were in. Like he, he looked at them truly with his eyes of love first. And that's the validation piece. And so I never got that validation um, from my ex-husband at the time. But I did get it from God and I did get it through, you know, validating myself as well, like writing this song. And so then I could move on to do the other work, like the rest of the healing, which the next part for me was learning about what I was in and reading self-help books and, you know, going to AA meetings to understand like patterns of addiction, talking to addicts, recovering addicts, talking to God, (laughs) talking to family, reading the Bible. And so that's what I want this album, The Waiting Room, to do for people. I want it to be that moment where it's a mirror. Somebody can see themselves in my story and understand that they are not alone, that somebody else has also walked this path. And then they can move on to the next steps of healing, which is like learning and wrapping your head around what you just went through, which makes it so much less confusing And then you can move on to the other stuff, forgiving and all that, which that's the part of like how I got out of the well, which I'll talk about in a little bit here. But it took me a couple years to honestly get my self-esteem back to a healthy level. And so it's just interesting like how much of an effect like a toxic environment truly does have on you, um, but you really just don't. You don't know it until you're out of it. But anyway, so to get into what codependency is, I looked it up really quick so I could tell you all a definition, but the American Psychological Association defines codependency in part as, quote unquote, the state of being mutually reliant and a dysfunctional relationship pattern in which an individual is psychologically dependent on or controlled by a person who has a pathological condition which could be alcohol or gambling. There's also a article from Very Well Mind that I loved that talks about it, and it says codependent relationships describe any relationship in which one person derives their happiness, self-esteem, and sense of worth from being needed by the other person. The other member of the partnership enables codependent behavior by allowing their partner to make extreme sacrifices for their benefit. So it's perfect for an addict because if they allow their partner to make extreme sacrifices for their benefit, it means that they can keep their addiction going. So for me, I enabled his addictive behavior, but at the cost of my health and at the cost of my soul and my well-being and my self-esteem. And so that's the extreme sacrifices that I made for his benefit. And I needed to be needed. I wanted to fix the situation. I wanted to to help. And so I would give, 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 give at any cost. And he would take, 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 take. And so because that's just the nature of addiction. Like they're feeding something empty that goes into them and they're getting nothing out of it and it's running them dry. And so they have to take from somewhere else. So they're, they're used to taking and it's a selfish personality that develops from addiction because you have to think about yourself because you're constantly in survival mode, striving, like, you know, grasping because you are, you're drowning in your own stuff. And so you're grasping and it is survival mode. And so you're, you're willing to take at any cost as well. And so it's that whole like, cycle of a hamster wheel. One person goes one way giving and then the other person goes that exact same way and keeps pulling it up, taking it. So it's literally like this tornado, like whirlpool cyclone situation where it's not a healthy two people are coming from separate sides, like coming to the top of the circle meeting and then going back around. There's no healthy current, like it's, it's an imbalanced current that's happening. And that's why it's like spinning out of control, because it's one person gives one person takes. And so if you ever define yourself in a relationship, as like, I'm spinning out of control, or like, I can't see past my own, I can't see past the fog. I'm like, I don't know my left from my right. I'm in the mud. I'm just We keep going around and around on this hamster wheel. Think about the patterns that cause that, like literally draw it out on paper. Like, which way are you guys going? Like, is it a whirlpool because it's a codependent pattern? Because it's a lot more common than you think. And then the article also talks about that people are more likely to seek this kind of dynamic in relationships with codependency. If you went through something like emotional abuse as a kid, so like bullied or or had a really controlling parent or something, it could also be biological. So in the brain where you're actually wired to feel more em- empathy than others, or maybe you had substance abuse in your family, like your one of your parents or both were um, substance abusers. That will make you predisposed to be attracted to codependent attachment styles and relationships later on in life. But this truly was a piece in my relationship. I chose to take on his problem. I remember a journal entry that I had when we first started dating and it said something like, I know he's got challenges and problems and they're really big, but I'm choosing those challenges too, and they're mine now as well. And I'm ready to to take it on for him. So I was like, What are you thinking, little Al? Like you have no idea what you're doing. You think you can fix it, but you've never seen a giant like this. And it's not something that you can fight. Like, this is this is way too big to, to marry. Like God needs to take that on. To give you an example of like codependency in a relationship, he had gone to a friend's house and drank too much to drive home. And so he called me to pick him up and I was, you know, super annoyed. Um, It's like totally different if, you know, this doesn't happen very much. I think grace can be given, but like this was an issue in our marriage. And so I went over to go get him and I remember just, I was trying hard to make the marriage work and so I brought him a bag of chips because I knew that he'd be hungry. And so he told me that that meant so much to him. And we had been doing at this time these affirmation nights. So like once a week, we would talk about the things in the week that meant a lot to each other that the other person did. And so that we could try to do more of that. Like we were actively trying to work on our marriage, but there was like this huge giant in the room that he wasn't willing to budge on or really like face it for what it was. And so it was like... We were just trying to fix and grasp at all these other things that are good to learn and good to do, but it wasn't going to fix the issue that was so massive in our marriage. Now that I understand what codependency is and like addiction and all that, I'm like, he liked that so much because that sent the message to him that he could keep doing what he wanted to do with his addiction. He could keep that going. He could have his cake and eat it too, because yeah, I would talk to him about that. I didn't like A, B and C from it. I would sit him down and communicate like, hey, this isn't OK. Like it's not going to be whatever. But I stayed and I brought him chips. <laughs> so like what messaging am I actually sending? It, Like I said, it'd be different if this only happened like once in a blue moon. Then, yeah, bring him chips, whatever, like move on but i was sending a message that it's okay to keep doing this because i'm still willing to sacrifice my well-being for you to keep going in your addiction. So that's not love. Like that's codependency. I really think it should be required for kids to take a basic class on this like at when they're seniors in high school because i think it would help a lot of kids at least even just like understand the cycles that they went through as kids it would just help so much like I think it should be required because like I had no idea about any of this stuff until after I left my marriage but this song the well I wrote it when I felt the result of my codependent actions I was giving and enabling for so long and he took and took until pretty soon I was drowning with nobody to save me and there's a line in there that says when I was in the well and drowning you were up there looking down Say and lucky how we both have water. It was like super patronizing. I'm here. like can't you see that I'm drowning? I just needed to be seen in my pain because I was drowning, but I was being told that I was fine. So it was just super patronizing and you know, but that's also part of that survival technique I talked about earlier. He had to, because I think it's a combination of pride, but also he couldn't face it. He had to stay in that denial because it was going to be too much pain for him. Because if he did face it, then he he would have to face his own demons. But the second verse of the song touches on the love that was was there. The line talks about, um, Now, honey, I don't think it was all bad. I hope you know that I picked the flowers in all the fields we ever wandered through but I don't think you ever stopped to realize that you were leading and I was breathing all the dust from you. So it's like, I tried to, to look back on all of that in love and realize that I really did love him. And I really did want to see the beauty in, in the mud, but it was like, I was breathing du- like dust in, and it was an impossible situation that I was in, but I still tried to pick all the flowers and all the fields. I still tried to find the good. And I I kept moving and I kept following his lead. And you know, just because you're in a toxic situation doesn't mean that there's not love there. Like I believe, like some people look back and they're like, oh, that was just toxic trauma bond, whatever. There was no love. But it that that wasn't real love. Well, yeah. It's not sustainable love, but we all have God in us. So we all see, even if it's not very often, like there are glimpses of each other that we see. We see the heart of God in each other. Like God gave us his heart. We have God's heart. And so we can see that beauty in each other. It doesn't mean that the relationship is sustainable necessarily. And that doesn't mean that you should stay. But just know that like that love is there. And that beauty of that person's soul is there. And for me, truly loving that person was letting them go. Because staying was just being a crutch to them. And it was allowing them to avoid the natural consequences of their actions and stay in La La land. And that's not helping their soul progression at all. That's doing the opposite of loving that person at, at a soul level. Like thinking about it of like their soul development and progression. It's not just about the things that you do here on earth. It's also like things continue later like when you're when you're not here. And so that was like how I got into the well. But how I got out, you know, was obviously learning about the patterns and wrapping my head around what I had just gone through, but also the forgiveness piece. I tried to leave in love and grace and forgiveness. And I can say that I did do that. Did I feel that all the time? No, but I did do that. And the reason is because forgiveness is a choice. If you've never heard that, note this. Forgiveness is a choice. When we think of forgiveness... We probably think of like all smiles, like happy, like you're feeling it. You're not bringing it up anymore. You're not feeling the hurt of it anymore. But that's rarely anybody's experience. Like what happens when we don't feel it? We feel guilty. We blame ourselves. We feel ashamed. Like we're not forgiving. How many times have you been told that you're not forgiving? Probably a lot like me. And it's because the feeling part of it comes later most of the time. But we condemn ourselves for not feeling it. And that gets in the way of our healing. That's exactly what the devil wants. Forgiveness doesn't always mean feeling no contempt or hurt. It's just a choice that you make. And recently I was in a situation where I had to forgive a friend. It was super hard for me to feel it because I was really hurt. And I was talking to my mom and my grandma about it. She started to explain like, and my grandma, she's been... She's made such a choice in her life to walk so closely with God, and, and one of the things that she's learned over the years, which really rang true to my spirit, was the soul. So she started talking about the soul. So we have, God gave us a new heart. He gave us his heart. It says that. It says in Ezekiel, I will give you a new spirit and a new heart, but it doesn't say anything about giving us a new soul. It says he came to save our souls. Basically, our soul is our humanity, our human nature, like that animalistic part of us. And there's three parts to the soul. There's your will, which is your choices, your mind, which are your thoughts, and your emotions, which are your feelings. And the will is the head of the soul ship. So the will is the master. Eventually, the emotions and the the mind and the thoughts, they answer to the will. And I know like a lot of times in our lives, like there's definitely been times where (laughs) we've been soul heavy, like much more led by emotions. And that is so not life-giving because the emotions are not meant to be the head of your ship. So the will is like that silent master, that silent steering wheel, that that the two answer to like the other ones are like immature children where like they're like screaming and trying to be louder than the will. And we usually let the emotions run, but it's like what happens when the will is the master is that you make those choices to forgive. You say, I do forgive. I'm forgiving. I'm forgiving. And so then eventually the two little bratty twins, (laughs) the emotions and the thoughts, they settle down and they do submit to the will if the will is the steering wheel, then the captain is whoever we make the captain. So the captain can be me. It can be God. It can be money, addiction, like whatever your master is, whatever your idol is, that's what becomes your captain. Whatever you spend your the most time thinking of, that becomes the captain that steers the ship. And the only captain in my experience that does not sink the soul ship is God. So I choose to, on my good days, align my will with God's and say, Lord, what do you think about this? What do you say about this? When I'm not feeling it, I still choose it. And so you can't be bad at forgiving. Like, no, I do forgive. I am forgiveness. I forgive. I choose to forgive. I am actively and successfully forgiving. Do I feel it yet? No, but that comes later. So I called my grandma before I recorded this episode because I knew that we had just talked about forgiveness. And so I called her and I said, I'm going to do an episode on forgiveness. And she said, Ooh, make sure you read these scriptures. And so she sent me a couple of scriptures to meditate on and just see what else God kind of reveals. And so the first part we talked about was like in the Bible, it says that God saved our souls. So in Ezekiel, it says, I will give you a new spirit, a new heart, meaning he gives us his heart and his Holy Spirit. So like when he was resurrected from the dead after he died on the cross, he delivered us a gift. He gave us the Holy Spirit. He came back to life and said, I'm not going to be with you anymore, but I'm going to deliver you my Holy Spirit. And through him, you're going to be able to do Everything that I did here on earth. And so he says that he'll give us a new heart and a new spirit. And I think his heart is that compassion piece and seeing it with God's eyes. Like it's something that when we naturally see injustice, like our heart's fury, we feel it. When we see something that's wrong, like we have compassion for the person that's being hurt. We just naturally have that like animals don't have that depth of heart. Like I think some animals are able to show empathy, but but that's what's different about being completely soul driven and animalistic versus having God's heart that he gave us. We don't have to try to have his heart like we just naturally have that compassion like we don't have to choose it and say, oh, it'd be the right thing if I felt bad for that person. Of course, you have the, the narcissistic people that are lacking empathy and like their brains literally are wired different for whatever reason. But for the normal person, like we do have that heart of God. So if we have his heart and his spirit, it's, it doesn't say anything about him giving us his soul. He says he saves our soul and save means to preserve, to keep. It also means to rescue. Then it talks about like, you got to work out your own salvation. And so that's kind of confusing. Like, well, what does that mean? Because if God saved us by dying on the cross, and, and making that new covenant with humanity that we were forgiven for all of eternity, didn't he already save it? Yes, but we have to work out our own salvation. And I honestly think that that means when we choose continually to forgive, choose to love, choose to have grace, choose to have mercy, all these things— We are aligning our will with God's. We're making that choice day in and day out. We don't always feel it. We're working on feeling it. And that's that work out your own salvation part. And he's saving our soul because, like I said, in my experience, he is the only captain that does not sink the ship. Everything else eventually sinks the ship. Like, It's this great grand idea. Like it's got a really pretty captain suit and it looks like it has all this experience, but it doesn't. It just drowns the ship. And so that's the saving the soul piece. Thank God for that. Um, But when Jesus died on the cross, like he saved all of humanity in that moment. Like he made that conscious choice, that will, that was his will. And that cannot be undone. That is fact. He has forgiven us for our blindness, for our humanity, because it's not our fault. Like, I didn't choose to be born a human. And he knows that. Like, we naturally have that blindness. Like, we are blind sheep in so many ways. We do not see the way that he sees. Like, we are not programmed to to see and understand quite what he sees. And so basically, it's training our souls to align with truth so we can learn to have his mind and his emotions and his compassion and his will. The scripture that my grandma asked me to read and meditate on was Matthew 18, 21. And and what really hit me was, I mean, obviously, it was a good story. It's the parable of the unmerciful servant. So like the servant was given forgiveness by his master, but then he didn't repay that to somebody that wronged him. And so like, that's totally messed up, but like the beginning and the end really hit me. And when I first read this, cause I've known for a while that forgiveness is a choice, but when I first read this, it completely blew my mind, like the shift that God did in my mind on this. It says, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. So for me, like I used to always think that forgiveness meant to allow somebody to make those mistakes. And whenever I've read that before, I've thought, okay, so I just have to keep like letting that person hurt me 77 times. No, you're not letting that person hurt you. That has nothing to do with forgiveness. God doesn't talk about that. He doesn't say exactly what forgiveness means in this scripture, but he implies it, that it's having mercy the same way that God has mercy with you. Like God doesn't want you to stay in abuse. He doesn't want you to stay in a toxic situation where it's costing you your well-being it's not just challenging it's damaging it's killing you you softly it's killing you slowly it's not allowing 77 of the same kind of mistakes that you have to stay in that same environment it's saying it's going to take 77 choices of your will of forgiving and saying I forgive I forgive I forgive in order to feel it and truly be able To move on from that hurt, it's not saying that you need to stay in and deal with 77 occurrences. Like, if it's small things, then maybe that's true. But, like, the real soul damaging things, like, forgiveness has nothing to do with the actions that you take surrounding that. So like for some people, forgiving does mean staying and working it out. It just depends on like the level of severity of what's going on. But for other people, it means to forgive and leave. But just because you leave doesn't mean you didn't forgive. In fact, you may just need to get to a place of rest like I did in order to safely heal and safely forgive so that more damage was not being done. So just know that if you don't stay it doesn't mean that you're not forgiving them because you're, you're starting that work right now and you have successfully forgiven and you will continue to successfully forgive because it is not a feeling. It is a choice. And then to take it a little bit further, at the end of that chapter, so the servant did not repay the favor of forgiveness to somebody that harmed him, even though his master forgave him. And so that's totally messed up. And then... His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured, which I think is like the natural consequence of your actions. Like if you're not forgiving other people, that means that you're not you're not seeing things with God's eyes and God's heart. And so it like in turn just like damages you. It's like karma, you know, naturally life has a way of of bringing the consequences back to you. But it says this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So if you have God's heart, it's saying, see it from his eyes. Know that he forgave you. And so you are able to forgive other people because it's the same thing. They know not what they do. It's a blindness. Jesus even said on the cross, they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's, it's just so true. Like we don't understand the impact that our actions have on other people And so we have to see it from God's heart or choose to see it from God's heart. And so when we do that part that takes it a level further, it helps our emotions and our mind catch up to our will and submit to the will and eventually feel that. Because when you understand it from that bigger picture, it is easier to have the hurt dissipate. And so some things that you can do um, to support you as you forgive is like don't feed the emotions don't feed the mind the thoughts what are things that feed those two things well talking about it with your friends hashing it out venting you know I get it like that's one of my weaknesses but I have to like try to stop myself from talking about it so much and just choose it because I'm trying to strengthen my will not strengthen the two evil twins. (laughs) Um, The other thing is like, if something comes up and you just naturally are reminded of it and and you feel that hurt of whoever hurt you, just thank God that he's healing that in you and you just give him the pain and you make the choice again. But you know, maybe like the process looks different for you too, like where you need to confront the person that hurt you. That's healthy too. Just don't expect that they're gonna come back with a healthy response and and take ownership because chances are the behaviors that got them into that place in the first place are what they're going to keep clinging to unless they've done the work. Um, there's a chapter on confrontation in toxic parents, the book study that I do with the women that just got out of prison. And it talks about how like there's four, four points to confronting. And so if you're planning on confronting somebody and need some guidance, check that out, toxic parents, I'll put it in the notes, but It talks about saying like, this is what you did to me, number two. This is how I felt at the time, number three. This is how it affected my life, number four. This is what I want from you now. Could be an apology. It could be a change in behavior. It could be go to therapy if you're married. Um, Or like if it's a toxic relationship, it could be we're going to be done. Like I need separation or whatever. Just know that it's not I'm trying to forgive. It's that you do forgive. You are forgiveness. And you're working to feel that. You're working to feel fully healed from it. And also know that your physical proximity to that person doesn't have an impact on your ability to forgive them and make that choice. So whether you're with them or you left, you're still actively, successfully forgiving when you're choosing to forgive. But your proximity does have an effect on your healing and your rest and your recovery because it's impossible to heal when you keep getting wounded and wounded and wounded again. Just know that you do not have to stay in order to forgive. They're two separate things. The devil wants us to see forgiving as staying but that's not true and I'm giving you permission right now to separate the two. But here's some questions for you just to leave you thinking. Who do you need to forgive? And if forgiveness is a choice What else do you need to do to support that choice? Do you need to stop talking about it? Do you need to go to therapy? What do you need to do around that choice? Do you need to confront someone that hurt you? Do you need to leave a relationship to begin to rest and heal? Do you need to go to therapy with your spouse? These are just some questions to think about. But God, I want to thank you so much for this time and everything that you have revealed to us. I thank you that you are a good captain and that you are fully capable of heading the ship. Give us the courage to choose forgiveness and to choose to align our will with your will on the matter. And I pray for everybody that's been hurt and the people that hurt them. Um, Lord, on this podcast, I just pray for for their soul progression, Lord, and I pray for for healing for everyone all the way around. Thank you that you are just such a good God and in your name we pray, amen. If you wanna hear the song that inspired this episode, um, the music video is coming up right after this and to find my music, you can go to alexmaby.com, find me on my socials or look up my name wherever you get your music. If this episode resonated with you, I would love it if you would subscribe and share it with somebody else that you think would need it thanks for listening. I used to cry a little louder just so you'd hear me
0: in the guest room. That's how much I wanted you to be. Mine to be kind, to come find me. I was dying down the hall without When I was in the well and drowned You were up there looking down Saying lucky how we both have water Now honey, I don't think it was all bad Hope you know that I picked the flower To realize You were at the